Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, Pandora, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. And if you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have some thoughts or feedback on this episode or any other that you might have tuned into over the last few months. I check all the feedback myself, and it's awesome to hear from you guys every time I'm able to release a new show. Today's guest is former Seattle Seahawks and Detroit Lions defensive end Cliff Averill, and I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. This was a great conversation uh, full of all kinds of awesome stories about both his time in Detroit, his time in Seattle, and what he's doing now off the field with uh, his really incredible Cliff Averill Family Foundation uh, that does tremendous work in Seattle, Jacksonville, where he grew up, and Haiti, which is where his parents are from and where his heritage lies. So there's a lot covered in this episode. There's a lot of good football talk. There's a lot of good family and life talk as well. And I think you guys will really enjoy it. A little more about Cliff's background. As I mentioned, he grew up in the Jacksonville, Florida area where he was a four-sport athlete in high school. He played his college football at Purdue where he had 15 tackles for loss in each of his final two seasons as well as at least six sacks in those two seasons. Uh, He was a third-round pick by the Detroit Lions number 92 overall in the 2008 NFL Draft. And of course, if any of you remember what 2008 means as it relates to the Detroit Lions, you know that Cliff Averill's rookie year in the league, he was part of an 0-16 season, the first team to ever go winless in a 16-game season. And so that's something that he was part of, something that you know he was deeply involved in. He played very well himself, actually, that rookie year, so it was kind of conflicting on some levels. But he can provide some great insight into what it was like to be part of that, what it was like like for the organization and how they turned it around to reach the playoffs a couple years later and what it's like to be a guy who really wants to play as well as you can personally um, and put up good numbers personally but albeit doing so in a climate that is you know accustomed to losing and losing more than winning you know when Cliff was in Detroit he spent five years there he had at least five sacks every season and there were three years where he had at least eight and a half sacks and like I mentioned they go from 0 and 16 in the beginning of his time there and then eventually he helps them make the playoffs after those five years in Detroit he signs a free agent deal with the Seattle Seahawks and this is where things get completely different for Cliff I mean you talk about having a rookie year with your first franchise where you're 0-16, and then your first year with your second franchise, and in this case it's the Seahawks, they win the Super Bowl, and it's one of two Super Bowl appearances that Cliff was part of with the Seahawks. Of course, they lost the other one to the New England Patriots. That's the the famous Malcolm Butler, Marshawn Lynch, Russell Wilson, intercept it, run the ball, whatever you should do, uh, right down at the goal line. That's the debate that everyone talked about related to that game. Uh, But Cliff was a mainstay along that defensive line, and it was a tremendous, tremendous defensive line and a tremendous, tremendous defense as a whole. Um, In 2016, he made the Pro Bowl for the first time when he registered a career-high 11.5 sacks, and he was right in the rotation with Michael Bennett and all those guys that they had getting after the passer, forcing fumbles at a remarkably high rate, which we'll talk about in this episode, up there with some of the all-time great 
sack guys in terms of how often Cliff Averill was able to force fumbles. Uh, but unfortunately for Cliff, his career was cut short by a neck injury, a fluke injury where he took a cleat to the jaw and it resulted in an injury to his neck, a very serious one along the lines for those Packers fans that are still listening to the show of what Jermichael Finley dealt with when he was with the Packers and ultimately ended his career as well. Uh, but Cliff, you know, blossomed into a second career now that he's staying out in Seattle. He's gotten into radio. He has a radio show where he's on every afternoon out there in Seattle. Uh, he does some work with television broadcasting as well. And of course, as I mentioned, with the Cliff Averill Family Foundation, they put on tremendous events not only in Seattle, but back in his native Jackson and also working in Haiti to build a school and provide resources to that country in areas that are underdeveloped in that part of the world. So Cliff is a fascinating guy. There's all kinds of great insight uh, into football and into life and into his philanthropic works on today's episode. So without further ado, let's get into a conversation with former Seahawks and Lions defensive end Cliff Averill. Well, Cliff, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate it. I know everyone is getting settled into the new year here after the holidays and things like that. And, you know, the first question I really wanted to ask you is is about some of the work that you've been doing with your foundation. And I know that you guys have put in a lot of work into trying to make things as good as you can in, in the COVID-stricken year of 2020. And now you have some some big goals that you want to try and accomplish in 2021, even with some of the restrictions. And so I got to ask, what is it like to try and do all of this great work that you do for communities in Seattle and Jacksonville and Haiti and try and do it with everything that's been happening and looking forward to, to hopefully breaking out of that and getting back to some of your more normal events? Yeah, you know, like you just mentioned, right, 2020 was a, a year for for everyone to remember. And through my foundation, more so than anything, you know, we're just trying to help, right? Uh, I'm a firm believer of people are supposed to help people. I don't care where you're at in life. I don't care status or anything like that. And one of the reasons I feel like that is because I used to watch my mom and my dad, actually, both are, are Haitian and I would watch my mom, you know, come come home with, a, say, a $200 check after two weeks of work and send half of it back to Haiti. And and sometimes I'd ask myself, I'm like, but, you know, um, the I just seen the light bill. Like, it says it's overdue. You know, our electricity might be getting cut off soon. And she would look at me and say, well, our electricity might be getting cut off soon, but they don't have electricity, right? So it, it put things in perspective for me of always understanding that, you know, no matter what the circumstances are, they can be worse. And then two, no matter what the circumstances are, you can always help out. You can always lend a hand. And that's what my foundation is all about. You know, we do football camps, we do uh, health fairs, we do a wide range of different things. But this past year, we actually dove into the community of, of helping the kids out. You know, we donated $25,000 to a few different organizations around town that are either helping kids out um, because they're not in school and, and food or, you know, uh, passing out, um, uh, uh, partnering up with different organizations, whether it's getting families that are, aren't working at the moment, uh, food and different things like that. Because, I, again, I truly believe it's all about the people. We have to help one another out. And in 2020, it's either made that more prevalent and, and, and people can focus on that more and, and again, continue to give back. So uh, that's what the foundation is about. But the mission overall is all about is about juvenile diabetes and getting kids active and getting them out, you know, off the remote controls and, and stop watching TV and be active in the community as well. Well, one of the interesting things about 
your foundation is that you're you're helping communities and putting on events in in multiple countries here and in Haiti. And so I'm curious mm-hmm. if you could kind of elaborate a little bit about what it was like to to kind of monitor the pandemic as it as it took place in different countries, but still had a profound impact on your life, not only from family and friends that I'm sure your family members have back in Haiti, but also, you know, you're trying to build a school there. And and so what was it kind of like to, to be exposed to and sort of, um, you know, try and embrace the challenges of working forward through COVID-19 in two different countries? Oh, it's, it's interesting because even our contacts in Haiti, you know, um, were a little difficult to get into contact with at times because of COVID because of travel restrictions, because, you know, so many obstacles that, that they are fighting to continue to keep doing the work, but also making sure they stay healthy, right. And stay safe. So, uh, you know, but, but fortunately for me, I have a, a great executive director in Jeanette Owusu who, who kind of directs traffic from, from that standpoint, you know, and, and, you know, we come up with different game plans on how to execute, how to continue to try to make a difference in Haiti, even here in the States, obviously. But of course, a lot of hurdles, a lot of red tape, you know, um, just trying to stay in contact, trying to make sure the kids are, are doing well at the school, make sure the ki- the school is still up and running. Or if it's not, you know, how are we um, helping the community that the school serves as well? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a hurdle, man. It's, it's been an interesting year. I learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about my team, and uh, we'll continue to, to, to strive forward in this space. For somebody with with your background that came from a family where you said you had a, a mother who split, you know, at least 50-50 of her paychecks and sent them back to family members and, and instilled in you some of the important values of giving back. I'm curious, when you think about that upbringing and then you think about some of the biggest financial moments of your career so you know playing under the franchise tag which i know contractually can be difficult but is a large amount of money or signing your first deal in seattle or signing the extension in seattle when you come from the type of background that you did where helping other people is instilled in you from day one do those moments take on different meaning outside of just football did they feel like holy cow now i have the type of money where i can really make a big difference Oh, 1,000%. But it's not only that, though. I will say it's not just what I've been able to earn. It's also been what the city of Seattle and and people that support my mission have done as well, right? Uh, You know, as you you sign these new deals, you actually become more popular, right? You become uh, the face of the franchise with the franchise tag, or you become part of something special because they gave you an extension. Um, But also, you know, here the 12s is what, what, what the fans like to be called. Uh, they support that. They support your missions. If you look at, you know, all the guys that have been on the team over the last decade, whether it's Bobby Wagner, whether it's Russell Wilson, wh- whoever it may be, everyone has a, a foundation that, that likes to give back, but also the people get behind them. So I don't want to discount that piece, you know, with, no with, doubt. you know, we do fun, we do fundraisers where, you know, some years we might raise 500,000 and that's due to, you know, people around us. Uh, in the city supporting the mission and understanding that we truly are passionate about doing and giving back. Right. But as I did sign those new deals, yeah, it became more, it became more of a personal thing for me too. again, realizing where my mom comes from, realizing where my dad comes from, realizing that, you know, if, if neither one of them came to the States, how much different my life would be. Right. Um, and, and seeing those different things. So uh, when, when those new deals come around, you know, it, it's, it's life changing and understanding the, the just the lineage of where your family comes from and to where you're at right now and making sure you do right so you can continue to keep moving forward uh, plays a big role in that as well. 
You know, when I covered the NFL for a few years, I was in Green Bay, which is certainly, you know, just geographically not a place that a lot of people want to live in general due to the weather. But, you know, it's also not a place where a lot of the, the guys stick around, you know, throughout the year during mm-hmm. the off season. And Seattle, of course, is a great city in general, but also it seems like there are a good number of, of Seahawks and, and ex-Seahawks who are retired or have moved on with their lives that still either maintain affection for the city or maybe a residence there or, or maybe just like a a vacation house and so I'm wondering if if your relationship with the fans and the support that you received you know personally and as a team in Seattle did that play into your decision to kind of make your home there and you know become involved with radio and things like that after your career as opposed to you know picking up and going back to Jacksonville or picking some other part of the country to live in 1000 percent um I, I when I moved here that I, I, my wife and I used to joke around like there's no way we would ever live here during the off season or ever live here full time because I mean Seattle has a stigma you know until you actually move here you know oh my goodness it's, it rains all the time it's gray <laughs> yeah. it's it's just miserable right and and it has that stigma uh, for the rest of the country and I really think side note I really think people of Seattle like that because they don't want to actually share they don't want to be overpopulated because it actually is a beautiful freaking place to be, you no know, doubt. Uh, especially the summer, summer times. I mean, it's probably one of the most prettiest places to be in, in the country. But um, as far as for the fans, yes, they play a big role, but also just the relationships that you're able to build out here. Uh, I, I tell people this story all the time is, you know, um, most times than not, you know, uh, if, if I'm in Jacksonville or if I'm in Carolinas or, you know, some of these cities, most time than not, the athletes tend to be some of the top earners in those cities, right? right. And and I mean, there, there's other industries and different things like that. But honestly, here in Seattle, we might not come top 2,000, you know, because you have the Microsofts, you have the Boeings, you have the Amazons, you have so many tech companies, so many companies here, you know, T-Mobile, I mean, the list is long. And so it allows an athlete to not go into a space where he goes back home and everybody's taking from him, right? Everybody comes right. up with these new inventions and these new business opportunities. You come here to Seattle, uh, like you get to, you get to rub shoulders with people that actually want to pour into you. They want you to be better. They want you to be more than an athlete. They want to show you different opportunities. You know, when I got hurt, I had three different major companies reach out to me and say, Hey, you know, we love what you're doing in the city. We would love for you to come and, and work for us. Right. I'm talking to the CEOs and whatnot. Wow. And so, so just those opportunities don't present themselves often. So it, it was a no brainer for me and my family to move back up here because there was room for growth to be more than just that athlete to be, you know, to, to figure out what the next steps are. And uh, also, you know, have mentors that can lead you in those routes. So that's why it, it made so much sense for us to move out here. And, and I've continued to cultivate and continue to build that network of different individuals that I can call my friend now. And I can call them and say, hey, I'm working on this project. How can you, uh, like, what, what, what do I need to do in this space? You know, if I would have went back home, I'd have just been looking at the wall like, man, let me sure. let me get on the internet and see how to make things happen. You know, so it's just a different space and a different environment out here, and and it's it's great. So, how different was it? Um, how different did it feel for you to arrive in Seattle again, a city that has so much wealth, that has so much, um, you know, technology, so much uh, Fortune 500, you know, atmosphere to it, compared to 
young Cliff Averill in his 20s, and he gets drafted by Detroit, a city that's struggling economically, a city that has a history of racial tension, a, a city that, you know, is, is trying to rebuild itself after the auto industry had, you know, gone downhill over a number mm-hmm. of decades. What was that like being a young kid going into to that environment for the first time? You know, it's, it's crazy. And, and I've learned a lot from going to Detroit. One, honestly, I, I've learned that you do not judge a city state based off of what people uh, believe is going on out there. I just mentioned about Seattle, right? You know, it's great. It's miserable. We hate it. You know, all this. And it's, it, I mean, it is great a lot, but it's actually not terrible. It doesn't rain here <laughs> yeah. more than it rains anywhere else. Right. And it's the same thing with Detroit. When I got to Detroit, I was so paranoid. Oh my gosh. You know, uh, I'm going to Detroit, man. You know, they're out there and it's crazy. And, and you know, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta protect yourself at all times. You can't go. De- and, and what I found out <laughs> is Detroit actually is an amazing city. It has a lot of culture. There's a lot of people doing a lot of great things there. And it's no different from any other city or state uh, where there's just certain parts of the city that, you know, after, <laughs> after a certain time, you probably shouldn't be there, you know, right. and it's no different from any other place, uh, any big city in, in America. Um, but Detroit was awesome, man. It was, it was different. But I also was a 22-year-old. I was 23 years old. So, um, you know, as far as for the growth, the business, the, the entrepreneurial uh, a mindset, all these different things wasn't a thing I was thinking about. You know, it was more of, you know, play this game of football, try to figure things out, try not to be the reason why you're losing, and continue to keep bettering yourself in, uh, from a football perspective. You know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids or anything like that. So it was really all about just, Mom, Dad, I need to get I need to get things together for you guys. Um, but over the years, you know, you start to pay attention. You start to understand what other people are doing. You start to understand about investing. You start to understand, you know, things outside of football. And I think Detroit helped me get to that space of understanding that. Uh, then Seattle took it to a whole nother level for me. From a football standpoint, was it conflicting at all to you yourself have a, a pretty good rookie season? I mean, five sacks, four forced fumbles, seven TFLs, you make the all-rookie team, and yet for the rest of time, your rookie season is going to be remembered as the 0-16 <laughs> season. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? My, my mindset that year, once once we started losing, because I, I, I honestly can say – uh, that year, I didn't. I, I wasn't paying attention to how bad we were as a team. It was more of I want to get more playing time, and I also wanted to be the reason why we. Towards the end of that year, I wanted. I, I didn't want to be the reason why we were losing. Right. So you know, it, I just had to put my best foot forward. And then also, I, I started hearing murmurs of, "Hey, we're getting a new head coach next year." You know, and all these. So you, you better put some good, some good film out there because your film is your your resume, right? And and so that was my mindset going into it. And and then that off season is when I realized how bad we were as a team. You know, when when I go out and people are like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh yeah, I play for the Lions, and people would start laughing. You know, oh wow, and yeah, so it got to the point where I didn't even want to tell people who I played for. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the and 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 you know, a few years later, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, you work your whole life to get in this umbrella of the NFL, right? And then now you can't even tell people you play for said team because of how bad they were. I mean, this is the ultimate, this is like the, the pinnacle of football, 
Yep. Right. You know, and, and to get to a space where you can't even tell people that you play for said team because of how bad they were. That's when I started realizing, like, oh, dang, we were pretty bad. You know, so the first team to go 0-16 and, and all these different things. It was it was just an interesting space to be in because you're balancing trying to be the best pro. And also uh, you start to realize, you know, no matter how good you are, no matter what your numbers look like, if your team isn't successful, it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. So uh, it was a lot of learning um, that first year for sure. You know, week 17 that season, you guys go to Lambeau Field, and obviously it's cold, it's December, and into the fourth quarter, it's a game. You guys are within three. And I always wondered, what was the locker room like, either before the game or at halftime, when this is your last chance to not be the first winless team? There are some very proud guys in that locker room. I remember reading some of the quotes from Dominic Riola, um, you know, one of your teammates, mm-hmm. an offensive center, a veteran, a guy who was, you know, really a, a, a mainstay in that organization for a while and you know he talked about how for the rest of time now this has to be on his resume and it it hurts him as a professional and a guy who wants to be known as you know a winning football player and so what was that whole day like I mean it's your last chance to not be the quote-unquote worst team ever was it just was it a strange locker room that day no no I mean at the end of the day you gotta you gotta realize I don't care if you're an 0 and 16 team or you're a 16 and 0 team these are some of the most competitive people you're ever running into right nobody we all want to win like that's the ultimate goal we hate losing more than we like winning right you know what I mean like so so we really want to get after it and so going into that game you know we're, we're we're sitting there like hey we got to go out here and ball out like there's jobs on the line there's you know resume like all kinds of different things that's on the line but on the other side in the other locker room guess what they're saying let's not give it to them like let's not be the only team that allowed them to win a game that year all these different things are going on so um if the locker room was was interesting you know again everybody was hyped up trying to trying to make something happen um and and uh man matt flynn came out there and and, and torched us (laughs) yeah yeah and you know again you have an opportunity in the fourth quarter uh there's an interception thrown by dan orlovsky and it just it doesn't go your way but you know over the next couple of years you guys start to to build something in detroit to the point where you know you Mm -hmm. have a winning season you you go to the playoffs and you know one of the things that i really respected about your game is um your nose for the football and what i mean by that is you forced fumbles at a really really impressive rate and and when i was looking through your stats getting ready to talk to you you know i noticed that you had four years with four or more forced fumbles and i started thinking to myself that's a that's a pretty high rate so i went and looked it up and forced fumbles have only been tracked i think since 1999 and since 99 the guys that have the most forced fumbles are robert mathis julius peppers john abraham dwight freeney and jason taylor that's a pretty darn good list but when you look yeah. at the rate at which they force fumbles, you forced one fumble every 4.8 games. Julius Peppers, every 5.1. Dwight Freeney, every 4.7. Jason Taylor, every 5.1. So you are directly on par or better than three of the guys who have forced the most forced fumbles since they started tracking it. And I'm wondering what goes into that skill. Why were you so good at it? Did offensive linemen try and do anything to try and take away your hands in different ways? Did quarterbacks know you were going to poke it out? How, how did you develop that reputation of being a guy who got the ball out so often? 
Well, first off, those stats that you just read off, that's my first time hearing that, and it just gave me chills because all those guys <laughs> are guys that I looked up to, right? They're they're all guys that are going to be Hall of Famers. They're all 100-sack-plus guys, yeah. and they all played longer than me too, right? So to be in the conversation of all those greats, man, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> as far as for the forced fumbles, um, honestly, it just became a thing. For me, it was more of I started realizing, honestly, it was just hard, it was easier to get the ball out than to actually bring the quarterback down. You know what I mean? Like, sure. if, if you hit the elbow hard, I, I realized and learned from a, a great coach, uh, Chris Kasurik, if you hit the elbow hard enough, the ball will come out. You know, and that was always my focus every time I came around the corners. Let me hit the elbow. I want to make sure I wrap them up at the same time, but let me hit the elbow and see if I can get the ball out. And, and it was consistent, you know, and, and I got really good at it. And it became my focus, especially when I got to Seattle. Because, you know, in Seattle we have a thing called um, Turnover Thursdays. It was, it was a whole day based on turnovers. And as a D lineman, you're like, okay, how do I force turnovers? I can't get interceptions. I can't, you know, hit somebody hard enough, a uh, running back hard enough to to get a turnover or anything like that. So how do you how do you how do you fit into this puzzle? And already knowing that sack fumbles is kind of my thing, I'm like, I need to focus more on that. And when I got to Seattle that first year, we make a run to the Super Bowl. I, I forget it might be four or five, five or six. I don't. I forget how many forced fumbles, but that was my thing. That was how I was going to contribute to this great defense. Uh, uh, and causing turnovers, and and you know it just became a focus of mine. What was the the free agency process like for you? I always find that interesting. And so, what was it like when when you <laughs> had the opportunity to go, you know, maybe uh, to a handful of different places? And and how did that play out between you, your agent, and the prospective teams? Free agency was stressful my year. Um, I mean, it wasn't anything what I expected it to be. It wasn't. It didn't come close to it especially come off of a franchise tag. You know, typically a franchise tag means, you know, you're, you're probably going to get paid the following year. You know, if, if you stay the course, I think I had nine sacks that season. Um, I was quote unquote supposed to be, you know, the best free agent, our best defensive free agent at the time and all these different things. And, and this is a part of the reason why I stopped watching the media too, because I was ESPN was just flat. Oh, Cliff Averill, you know, all these different things. And the free agency rolls around that year. Um, and I wasn't getting that many calls. And every team was saying that, oh, we think he's going to be too expensive because we had just had the lockout. And honestly, I believe the NFL was colluding at the time. But that's 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 for another another story. Sure. I think they like so there was a lot going on and nobody nobody really got paid that offseason. You know, so it just it, it, it left a nasty taste in my mouth. And that's why honestly why I didn't want to go into free agency again. Um, so it was a, it was an easy decision. One, I wanted to be in Seattle too, but it was just an easy decision to say, "Hey, man, let's let's just get a deal done. I don't need to maximize anything. I, I let's just get us a deal done, so I I can be secure." Because at the end of the day, in the NFL, that's all you want. You want security, and usually that's the first couple years of your contract. Um, but free agency for me in particular, it was it wasn't it wasn't fun. It wasn't pleasant. I was calling my agent like, "Hey, what's like what's going on?" Hey, uh, nobody, nobody's called. Like, what, like, what do you mean nobody's called? Like, why, why aren't you on the line? ESPN <laughs> is telling me I'm the best dog on free agent right now. Why isn't anybody calling me? And that it, it, it was just a lot of, oh man, we think he's gonna be too expensive. Oh, we think he's gonna be too expensive. And so that's why I ended up signing a two-year deal coming to Seattle. And so you come to Seattle, and, and I don't think, you know, for a guy that played with, with two teams, I don't think you could have 
a different first year experience with either franchise. I don't think there's anything more possible <laughs> because you go from you go from 0 and 16 in your first year in Detroit to winning a Super Bowl your first year in Seattle. And not only that, but it's a team loaded with pro bowlers, a team loaded with guys who are going to be future Hall of Famers. And and so I'm wondering when you get to Seattle, does it almost just feel like when you look around at practice you're like, "Holy crap, the talent out on this field is is ridiculous." Man, so so for for yeah, what you just said, you know, going zero and sixteen to being a Super Bowl champion in a in a six year span, um, you know, for for a while there, I was actually the only player that had ever done that, you know, to lose every game then win a Super Bowl at, at some point in their career, and um, but yeah, getting to Seattle was so interesting because one of the main reasons it was a no brainer for me to come here was because of all the talent. You talk about LOB and you talk about Richard Sherman, Cam Chancellor, Earl Thomas, uh, Brandon Browner at the time, uh, all these guys. So for me, it was, it was more on the side of it gives me a split second longer to be able to get to the quarterback. That's how I was processing it, you know. And, and you, get to, you get to the first few practices, and, you know, they got music blasting, the energy. You know, Coach Carroll really has all this energy and, and all this stuff. And I'm sitting here like, this is not what I'm used to. This is kind of chaotic. There's no way they can keep this going because that's not what I was used to. Sure. And I would watch practice, and I'm sitting here like, oh, wait up. These guys are really doggone good. Like, and, and, again, it became for me like, how do I fit into this puzzle? With all this greatness out here, how do you stick out? How do you how do you step up? You're talking about the likes of Bobby Wagner, who's going to be a Hall of Famer. You're talking about Sherm, you know, uh, just a wide range of great players. How do you fit into this madness uh, or into all of this on top of, oh, you're supposed to be this top free agent. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be this guy. So, so there's the pressure of the personal pressure of how do you fit in? And then there's the pressure of, well, let's see what this guy has because you're, you're, you're supposed to be the real deal. And, again, that's why I, I started focusing more on the sack fumbles and whatnot. But, again, it was, it was, it was crazy to watch, man, because, because there was just so much talent. I had never seen I have never been – all of my years, I had never been a part of anything like that where there were so many great players. And, and you just got to find a way to, to show up and, and earn their respect as well. You know, for injury purposes during the regular season when you guys are practicing, the ones don't go against the ones a great deal of time. And also the majority of practices, especially as the season goes on, end up being unpadded. And so I'm curious, when it, when it come, came to training camp, and so you actually had ones against ones, and you had, you know, Russell against the defense and Marshawn against the defense and Doug and Jermaine Curse and these guys, um, you know, how competitive were some of those one versus one periods in, in August before uh, before the season got going? Well, you give it about four days uh, before a fight breaks out or a brawl breaks out. It's it's like clockwork. It's four to five days, especially for D-linemen. It's like four to five days. Uh, it's like clockwork because, one, everybody's obviously trying to get better. But then, two, um, you know, people start getting tired. People start, uh, you know, the competitive edge starts to come out a little bit more because you're, you're feeling like you're, you're back on par. And um, just watching the one, like I, I recall our one-on-ones, uh, you know, as a D lineman, you know, with the first few days, you know, you're getting a feel for it. And then now, you know, full pads. And now, you know, everybody's coming out with bull rushes. We're going to just bull rush and make them feel our presence. Right. And then now it's like, okay, I'm tired of your bull rushing. You know, they yank you to the ground. All right. Now, now if one person fights, we all fight. And it was like, <laughs> like I said, it was like clockwork. You know, if, if Mike B got into a fight, you better believe I'm there. If I got into a fight, you better believe the rest of the D-line was there. 
And, and, um, but it made us better. Now people might not understand that, <laughs> because, but, but it made us better as a team because, or as position wise, it made us better and then as a team. It made us better because now the camaraderie is being built, right? Cause the offensive line, if one of them get in a fight, they're all jumping into it too. Right. Sure. Um, so it was just a lot of competition and the only way you get better at football is by competing, you know? And, and now, you know, it's not, uh, you're not trying to give anybody the edge on you because you still have two more weeks of this of this stuff, right? So it's just competing and competing, iron sharpening iron. And and when I watch the DBs, when I used to watch Sherman and Earl and all of them, they're all talking trash to each other. You know, they're talking trash to Dub. They're talking trash to Jermaine. They're talking trash to Marshawn. Even the quarterback, they're talking trash <laughs> to the quarterback, which was very new to me. <laughs> you right, know right. Like, that's the one person you don't speak to uh, at practice. But, again, that's what made us so great is because iron sharpens iron. We didn't care who it was. I'm going to make sure you bring your best every time, and that's only going to force me to bring my best every time. In addition to having so many great players on the defensive side of the ball there, I was looking at the coaching staff that year, and it's often hard to judge in real time and say, okay, this coaching staff has a bunch of of future stars on it. But when you look at that staff, you know, Dan Quinn's a defensive coordinator. He goes and becomes a head coach. Ken Norton was the linebacker's coach. He's now the D coordinator in Seattle. Chris Richard was the uh, the defensive backs coach. He became a defensive coordinator. Marquand Manuel was a defensive assistant. He became a defensive coordinator. Mm -hmm. And Robert Sala was the low man on the totem pole at quality control and he's going to become an NFL yeah. head coach here probably in the next couple of weeks so um, you mentioned iron sharpening iron when it comes to players do you think iron sharpens iron when it comes to coaches in other words were these guys were these guys bouncing ideas off each other and, and just so creative in their own rights with all these unique minds in one room that they sharpened each other in that respect as well Oh, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. You know, everybody, because think about it, every group wants their group to be the best too, right? So, so it, 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 it's com- competing in, in, a, in a different form where it's not physical, where it's not, you know, verbal. Or anything. But I want my guys to be great too, you know, and I don't want my guys to be the weakest, uh, weakest link on, on, on the defense. Like the D-line coach, I'm sure he, you know, Dan Quinn would appreciate him because he was definitely a D-line coach uh, at the end of the day as well. He didn't want his D line to be the worst out of the DBs when we we just heard the list of DBs that we had, right? So right. Uh, I think there was definitely some competitive edge there. But I, what I do want to bring up is Salah, Robert Salah. He, um, although he was the lowest man on the totem pole, I'll never forget one day um, I, I went on a stretch of like six games of having at least half a sack or a sack uh, during that Super Bowl year or something like that. And he came up to me. He was like, "Yeah, man." Um, this is like your fifth week of at least a sack. And I'm sitting here like, how do you know that? Like, why are you paying attention <laughs> to that, right? But, like, that's how in tune he was with the entire defense, with the, with everything. You know, he, he might have been the lowest man on the totem pole, but he knew everything about that defense. He studied the mess out of it. So, for him to have the success that he's having right now, I am not shocked. I am not surprised because uh, he was very much in tune with everything that was going on in that building on the defensive side of the ball. You know, I know you still watch a lot of football. I know, obviously, you talk about it with, with um, you know, your day job, talking on the radio and things like that. And so when you see these these tentacles of the Pete Carroll tree go out into other places, whether it's Dan Quinn or Chris Richard or Marquand Manuel or Robert Sala, whoever it is, and you look at their version of the defense wherever they install it do you see a lot of similarities is it legitimately similar or are there so many tweaks by now from you know the the lob days the legion of boom that that it's not quite what it was back then 
You know what? It, it's not quite what, what it was back then, but you do see a lot of similarities. You know, every, every coach is going to have their little tweak to it, right? Whether, you know, instead of playing the defensive end and head up on a tight end, now we're going to play him in the nine technique so he can get active in, in, in pass rushing so we can have somebody on the open side. Or, you know, maybe we're going to play uh, and instead of an over front, we're going to play under front a little bit more. All things we did, but, you know, they might lean on one more than the other. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you definitely see the philosophy of being the same. Also, I think mindset and, and the type of personnel that you have. Uh, the year we won the Super Bowl, I, I kid you not, we probably played three different defenses 90% of the time. You right. know what I mean? And, <laughs> and, and the, the opposing team knew that. We knew what we were going to do. We just perfected the mess out of those defenses. So, yeah, you know what we're going to do. Now you got to deal with it. Like, let's see what you can do. We know you, you know we're going to be in this 4-3. You know we're going to be in the underfront or whatever it is. You know we're going to be in it. You know where Cliff Avery's going to be at. You know where Michael Bennett's going to be at. Now let's see if you can draw up something to throw us off. But we got so good at our technique. We got so good at, you know, that, that scheme that it didn't matter. You know, it, didn't, it really didn't matter. And, and I think that's the difference with all these other coaches. When they go off to these other places, they don't have maybe – all 11 players that can be can be great at those things so they then they complement it with you know hey we're gonna we got Khalil Mack we're gonna bump him out to a nine you know Dan Quinn out there you know he might change up what his DBs are doing because they're not as good they they don't do what Richard Sherman does uh, really well in that scheme see what I'm saying but again the core philosophy of it the foundation of it very similar was it weird at all to reach a Super Bowl uh, that first year? And, and then obviously you guys won it. But um, to reach a Super Bowl and, and feel like, OK, I've been playing football all my life, this game that, you know, tears my body apart and makes things really painful physically and mentally. And it's a challenge. And I finally make it to the Mecca, that that best game ever. And then you guys win by 40 something points almost, you know, 43 <laughs> to eight. And you just roll. I mean, was it was it odd for that Super Bowl feeling to like the game was over so fast, you know? <laughs> Not at all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Not at all. Because it was. I mean, it's the, again, like you just said, it's the pen, like it's the ultimate thing that you want to be able to do. Like winning, you know, in college, that was obviously that's great. But to win in the NFL, we're talking about the best football players in the world. So you're the last team standing. So we didn't care how we got it. I'm glad it was a blowout, to be honest with you. In the same breath, though, we didn't think it was over until the Percy return. Sure. That's when it was like official for me. Where it's like, okay, yeah, like this game is out, out of it. Because you're going against Peyton Manning. At the time, they're the, the highest scoring offense, you know, most touchdowns, all, all this other stuff. So you had to give them that much more. You had to give them that, that respect of possibly being able to come back. But then when Percy, like I said, ran it back, it, it made it a, a, you know, that's when it became official. But no, you take it how it comes, man. Uh, you go out there and you win, you get that blowout, because obviously, because <laughs> I know that's what's next. The you know you can lose it in a different mass, uh, uh, manner as well. So yeah, you, you take it as uh, how it comes. Well, I was going to ask you about that, so I give you credit for seeing the foreshadowing <laughs> there. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is: is that 2014 NFC Championship game? Does that still stick out as one of just the the weirdest games that you were ever part of? Uh, the one against Green Bay, correct? Yes, exactly. Yes, 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 yes. But. That also is the game that I became a true believer of Russell Wilson, right? Because that game was so weird. I think we're down 16-3 or something like that. And, um, you know, Russ wasn't having his best game. He, I think he threw four or five interceptions at the time. Yep. And, and yet, you know, he comes over after his last one, he comes over to the sideline and he's like, bro, like, 
just believe in me. All I need is a chance. Like, we can make this happen. We're only down a couple uh, touchdowns. Like, just believe in me, right? And a lot of the guys, including myself, I can't front, we're like, bro, part of the reason we're in this is because of this. <laughs> like, we should, be, we should be down 40-something points right now, you know? Um, but but that's when I became a true believer of Russell because what he said is what he went to go out and do. Like, he, he told us, give him a chance, give him an opportunity. I think we had two three and outs uh, the next two drives. Yeah. He scored the next two drives. And boom, look at us. We're, we're, we're in this thing. And, uh, you know, it was just a whirlwind. But, again, that's, 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 I think that's when Russ became uh, a true leader in a sense of people following him. I think he was always a leader, but people following him and also believing in his mentality, that was the game that changed it for me. You know, that game was, was fascinating for a number of reasons. And my personal involvement was that at that time in 2014, I was not covering Green Bay and I started covering them in 2015. And for the next couple of years, all you heard about was that game, whether it was Brandon Bostic with the onside kick or um, yeah. <laughs> Julius Peppers telling Morgan Burnett to go down instead of trying to return the interception a little bit farther. And, you know, Julius Peppers never ended up winning a Super Bowl, and he played as long as anybody uh-huh. almost has ever played. And so you think about these moments, and it was just kind of fascinating to me how this one game could hang over a franchise for for so many seasons and certainly I'd say they've gotten over it now with you know going back to an NFC title game and it looks like this year they've got a chance to go there again if not even farther but you know it was just it was just such a weird game and and you know when you're on the other side of it and you win does did the game stay with Seattle that much longer like did you guys talk about how crazy that game was or was it only because it it caused Green Bay all this immense pain and frustration that it lingered so long you know what? Our mentality was so interesting that that those those actually my whole time in Seattle, but th- we had this whole mindset of we just want to go one and zero. You know, we just want to go one and zero every single week. If we just simplified it and just said we're gonna go one and zero every every single week, it makes the season shorter. One and also you can't overlook people, right? So I, I say that all that say with the Green Bay game, we honestly I. I didn't even realize how crazy of a game it was until probably that off season when people started asking about it, you know, because I can honestly say every year I was in Seattle, every single year I was in Seattle, I honestly believe we were in every single game. I didn't care what the score was at whatever point. I always believe, always believe we were in every single game and that game in particular, I felt like we were in that game as well because we're like, okay, my, I remember my, I remember uh, vividly sitting on the sideline next to Mike B, and he was. Uh, I think Russ. This is the second time, uh, second three and out before the second three and out. He's like, bro, let's get us another three and out. I bet we win this game. I'm like, okay, let's like let's do it. And I think he went and got two tackles for losses or something like that. He's like, no, we can do this, you know. And so it was never a doubt. Uh, we never had time to doubt who, what we were about. In, that, in those particular years, you know, and, and look back in that, when you look back at it, and you actually tell the story, people are like, yeah, right. But it gen- like we were so focused on just us being great and us just winning ball games, We didn't necessarily care how it came about. We just was that that was the end result that we were looking for. And we always felt like we were in every game. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, when we were talking about Detroit, you said that because everybody in the NFL is so competitive, that there are a lot of guys that hate losing more than they enjoy winning. And so I'm wondering for you personally, what feels like a stronger emotion winning the Super Bowl with Seattle or 
the loss in the Super excuse me, the loss in the Super Bowl in the fashion that you lost it. In other words, like if you had to put them on a spectrum, which one feels stronger mm-hmm. to you emotionally? The 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 elation that you felt of winning or the the sadness and 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 brutal heartache that you guys had of losing? Although I hate losing more than I like winning, the Super Bowl was be- bigger and better for me because of how my career started. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? So like me going like it, it just shows. It just shows if you continue to keep grinding, if you continue to keep working hard, if you if you really believe in yourself, things can change, right? And and that's kind of how I live my life now in general. But to go 0 and 16 into because that following year, those guys that was on that 0 and 16 team, I'm guaranteeing 75 percent of them were probably out of the league because a lot of coaches didn't want to be associated with it, right? Sure. So like it was an uphill battle for me the whole my like those first three to four years after that. And so to get to the point where I'm the, I'm on a team, I'm one on a team that's the last team standing, and also you played a role in the success of said team, like that was that was a journey. So I, I appreciated that way more. And I also I'm also the type of guy too, like I just look at things half full. Like yeah, we lost that Super Bowl, but yeah, I also won one because I know a lot of guys. We just talked about my man Julius Peppers. Much love, much respect to that man. Never got a chance to even win a Super Bowl. You know right. what I mean? So, like, I got, I have, to, I have to put that ahead of losing one because I, because I understand how hard it is to win in the NFL, let alone to win a Super Bowl in the NFL. Julius Peppers was one of the most fascinating people I had been around um, when I was in Green Bay, and you know, for a number of different reasons. First of all, there are a lot of big guys in the NFL, but when you look at Peppers without <laughs> his pads on, he is one of the largest Unreal. humans I think I've ever seen. And then. You know, I don't know how familiar you are with like the facility at Lambeau Field, but they have a full court basketball court in there and they used to have pickup games and things like that. And you would hear stories about these guys trying to cover Julius Peppers and how Peppers could just, you know, absolutely throw down no matter what. And don't forget, he was a division one college basketball player at North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. But then the thing that absolutely blew my mind about Peppers was it was his last year. Everybody kind of knew he was going to leave Green Bay. And I remember talking to him one day, it might have been with a group of reporters, and he said that in his entire life with all the football this guy played he never broke a bone and even though maybe he had his bell rung on occasion he never had a diagnosed concussion and to play along the defensive line which is such hand-to-hand combat and so physical to have both of those things happen and to play as long as he did and to be as athletic as he was that when I, that's when i was convinced that he just had a different set of dna than everybody else yeah no i, I mean <sighs> Pep is unreal, man. The first time I, I, I've always been a fan of his since college, but the first time I, um, I seen Pep, we, he was in Chicago still. He had just signed a major deal in Chicago. Um, I, I think this was like my third year, and um, I seen Pep do something so amazing. I remember watching him. You know, I, I'm usually one of the guys I, I go sit on. I go sit when the defense is down. Uh, or when the defense is off the field, you know, just to rest my legs. But I was so enamored by how great Pep was. I was like, man, you know, he was he was a, a right defensive end, and he was on our sideline at the time. So I'm like, oh, let me just watch this series. And I watched Pep. Uh, I think he was like 290 or something crazy like that, almost 300 at the time. I've seen him pass rush. And I think Matt Stafford threw like a flare to the opposite side um, of the field to their bench. And I seen Julius Peppers run by every single person on their defense and make the tackle probably like 30 yards downfield. And I'm like, 
there's no way a guy that's 300 pounds should be moving that doggone fast. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it was just, it was just so cool to see. And, and I've never been starstruck. I, I, I truly feel like everybody, you know, everybody is, is human being, you know, he puts his pants on just like me. Sure. But the first time I met Pep, this is my first time. This is after that same exact game. Uh, no, this is not, not, this is not even after the game. This is actually during the game. Uh, they, he made a play on our sideline or whatever. I'm like, Pep, slow down out there, man. He's like, come on, Cliff. You know I got to make things happen out here. Something pertaining to that. But he said my name. Okay. And I was like, Pep knows who I am. <laughs> Let's go. Because, <laughs> I mean, this man is – he's like – I knew he was going to the Hall of Fame. We all knew he was going to the Hall of Fame. This man is great. But the fact that he came – he said, come on, Cliff. He called me by my first name, and then after the game, he came and hollered at me, and, 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 and you know, we, we kind of talked about a few different things whatever. But I was, I was like, wow, Pep knows – and that was more gratifying than ever making it to the Pro Bowl. That was more gratifying than, you know, anything. Like, when you start getting respect from some of these vets that have been doing it for a long time and, you know, Hall of Famers and whatnot, and they actually know you and respect your game, there's nothing that beats that. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, is your career in, in some ways reminds me of Jermichael Finley, who I got to know when I was in Green Bay, yeah. in that you guys were both ascending players, players who had the potential or, you know, were getting near the very top of their specific position. And then, of course, the, the tragic career-ending injuries. And, and I'm wondering, everybody processes football being over differently. You could be like Julius Peppers and be healthy, and you leave football, and all of a sudden you don't really know what to do with your day, or you could leave in a in a more frustrating and sad fashion the way that, you know, guys who have injuries have to leave the game. And and so I, I'm wondering, you know, you're getting to this point, you know, in 2016, you know, you make the Pro Bowl, and, and you know, you you could have made it in Detroit one season too, but again, that's a different conversation. Um, and so, you know, you come to this point where, you know, it's year 10, which, you know, tremendous amount of uh, respect for just making it to year 10 in this league that, you know, chews up and spits guys out really fast. But, you know, you certainly had more left in the tank at, of high level football. And and I was wondering if you could describe kind of mentally what it was like to go from being in back-to-back -back Super Bowls to making the Pro Bowl to feeling like you're one of the best DNs in the league. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. Man, you know what, what's crazy? So you talk about Jermichael Finley. I actually spoke to him um, probably a couple of years ago and realized that we both had the same exact injury. And, um, you know, he was he, – we used to have our battles, and, and we, we actually hated each other on the field. But, we, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we had nothing but respect for one another as well. And, you know, hearing about his injury and how it happened, what year it happened in, I think it was like year six or seven for him or something like that. Um you know, and, and you kind of fast forward for me, uh, you know, you talk about the Super Bowls, you talk about going to the Pro Bowl, you did all, all that thing, all those things. Right. And, and everybody deals with them differently, like you mentioned. But for me, honestly, I was just grateful. So I, I'll, I'll give you a little backstory as well. So the injury happens. I don't think it's that serious. I'm thinking I'm going to go back in the game. It's a right. night game. Like my mom's watching. Like I, I feel fine. I'm telling the doctors I feel fine. Thank God, uh, shout out to Dr. Herring. He's like, no, uh, th this isn't normal. Let's go to the hospital, run through tests, whatever, right? But the thing that sticks out to me that night, one of the doctors came up to me because they asked me the same question a thousand times. Like, hey, are you sure you're okay? I'm like, like, if somebody else asked me if I'm okay, like, I might punch him in the face. <laughs> like, stop asking me if I'm – I'm like, I'm fine, you know? And um, one of the doctors comes up to me, he was like, and the reason we keep asking you, are you fine, is because most people don't walk in with this injury. You know, they, they, they get rolled in, they're, they're paralyzed. And I'm like – Holy cow. What? And that's 
yeah, and that's when it hit me that, oh, wow, this thing might be over with, right? Um, so I say all that to say, so when my injury happened uh, and I get this news of, you know, how bad it, it, it could have been, um, and also understanding that, hey, you know, it might be over with. You know, I had to have – there was no doubt that I had to have surgery. I got a plate in my neck right now. Um, and for me, how I, how, I, how I thought about it is there's nothing else the NFL can give you. You know, like you, you accomplished everything – literally everything the NFL can give you, you've done it. I've lost every single game. I've, I've won the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. I've lost the Super Bowl. I've gone to the Pro Bowl. Like, there's nothing. And, and, and thank God I had a few contracts, right? So, like, there's literally nothing. So, for me, it was more of a being grateful that I got to play 10 years in the NFL. Yes, I was just coming off one of my best years. Yes, I was still ascending. I still had a lot in the tank. But in the same breath, this could have happened year one, and none of that stuff could have happened, right? Very true. So, again, I tell you, I, I look at things half full. That's, that's really how I looked at it. You know, it was more of a, man. That was a great run. You know, I would have loved to keep playing. I could have probably kept playing. I probably had another three, four years in me, uh, you know, but that's not what that's not what's set for me to do. That's not what God has in his plans for me. But again, look at everything you were able to accomplish throughout those 10 years. You did every single thing possible. So let's be grateful for that. And let's let's figure out what the next move is. I know that in football, and especially at the NFL level, you guys accept the risks of the sport that you play. And so if, if a guy rolls up on you or if you tackle a guy and he gets hurt, unless it's obviously a blatant, dirty, disgusting play, there's generally no hard feelings between a guy who gets hurt and the guy who causes him to get hurt. And so I was kind of wondering, though, what was it like for you? And I almost wanted to ask Jermichael this, you know, back when I used to speak to him more frequently when I was covering the Packers, but... What is it like to see the guy that, that in effect, ended your career, albeit completely unintentionally, continue to play on in football? And with him, it was Tashawn Gibson, and with you, Jacoby Brissett. And again, totally fluke, not intentional, not malicious at all. But then you flip on the TV on Sunday, and you see Jacoby Brissett playing quarterback. Is that a, is that a strange feeling? You know what? Not at all, because like you just said, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't dirty. And honestly, the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm more pissed about of, of all of it uh, well, let me, uh, let me tell the story real quick too. Sure. Uh, so it's it's a play that I've done a thousand times. I'm chasing I'm chasing the quarterback down. You know, it's one of these last second tackles that you try to swipe their legs, you know, and click them together, and hopefully he trips up and he falls. Well, I guess I you know I guess as I dive out, you know, like Superman and try to swipe, I'm closer than I really expected, and his heel comes up and hits me right up underneath my jaw. Yep. Freak accident, you know, whatever. But what I'm most pissed about about that play is I didn't get the sack. That would have given me 75 <laughs> sacks. I would have loved to end on a sack. That's the most. That's the what I'm pissed about the most. Now, outside of that, it wasn't. I mean, he was doing his job. He's trying to get a first sure. down, right? I, there's nothing. There's nothing to be mad about. Um, I hope he has nothing but success. Um, it, yeah, it wasn't a dirty play per se or anything like that. So no, I. I, I I don't, I don't, I don't really care. I don't dig into it that deep to to feel some kind of animosity or anything sure. like that. It's more of man. I hope he has success. You know, it's a freak accident. Again, if it would happen year one, maybe I have a different opinion about it. But year ten, again, 
you know, there's nothing to be mad about. You know, one of the things I like to do toward the end of the show, especially with guys who had the opportunity to be around some, you know, incredible potential Hall of Fame type guys, is just ask for a little insight or a little tidbit on, on maybe a guy who doesn't get uh, a ton of attention, but who is a, a really darn good player. And the first one I want to ask you about, and maybe you disagree, but me being around the NFC North for a handful of years there in Green Bay, I think that Matthew Stafford deserves a tremendous amount of respect for what he does for that organization, not only through all the coaching changes, but I haven't seen a lot of quarterbacks who play through more stuff, and by stuff I mean injuries, than that guy does. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he can really sling it. And so I'm wondering, you know, do you do you agree that Matthew Stafford is one of those guys that, you know, maybe is a little underappreciated around the league simply because of the circumstances that Detroit has dealt with for so many years of, of you know, pretty consistent losing? Oh, I agree. Um, I mean, you talk about the injuries. You talk about uh, the players around him. Now, he's had some great players as well. Uh, you talk about the losing. Um, yet he still puts up – he's consistently putting up crazy numbers, you know. Um, and, and people don't know, uh, unless you've been a part of it, how hard it is to get a new head coach every two to three years. Right. Learning a new system, learning a new uh, verbiage, learning all these different things year in and year out for him and yet he's still able to 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 put up crazy numbers he you know he has years where they win a lot but football is the ultimate team sport you know and if you don't have the weapons that you need uh you know you just won't you won't exceed you won't excel in it right so uh yes i agree matt stafford definitely is extremely underrated but it's also due to marketing and winning as well no doubt no doubt um we talked about peppers being a physical freak so i have to ask you about calvin johnson what is that man like Oh my gosh, unreal! Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting when I look back at it because I, I I tell people this all the time is like the man came to work every single day, and I'm not just talking about just coming to work. Like he came to get better every single day, you know. And and I'm not surprised, but I used to watch him do some of the most craziest stuff during games or during practice. So when I seen it in the games, when I go see him, you know, go jump over three guys in a game. That was normal to us. That wasn't new. You know what I mean? Like, we expect him to catch that because we've seen it happen so many times in practice. And um, But the, the coolest thing about Calvin Johnson of, of, of it all is, one, he's a phone call away for me. And it's not like we were the best of friends, but sure. we, we had nothing but respect for each other and we're really cool. You know, I, whenever I need him, he's always there. That's one. But then, two, I remember when he was on the cover of Madden. And he's like the biggest superstar in the NFL at the time. He was on the cover of Madden. This man came to every single player in the locker room and gave them a, a copy of it and signed it for them. So that's like, pretty cool. Put, put, put it in perspective. Most guys are not doing that. You know, you got to go ask them, hey, bro, can, can you sign this for my kids, man? Like, no, he went to every player that wanted one and signed it for him right then and there. You know, so that shows you the character that he has. That shows you who he has, who he is as an individual. And he's definitely a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I hope he gets in this year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't see any way that he can't get in. What he did, what he did, you know, year after year is is just crazy. And you know what, what's what's even crazier is that you know honestly, every one of you guys has has the absolute right it's well within your right to walk away from the game whenever you want but it's it's crazy to think that like you know if he were still playing he wouldn't even be that old right now you know like it's he could conceive like you look at what you look at what larry fitz does out in arizona and you think i mean yeah calvin took a lot of punishment because he's a big guy and so he took some shots over the middle but like man it's almost like you wish you could see in some respect what he would have been like if he played another seven years you know 
Oh, it's unreal, man. But think, but think about this too. Like people, people, because I read something. They were like, "Oh, you know, he uh, six consecutive Pro Bowls. He, you know, he didn't make it his first two years." But if you go back and look at his numbers, those first two years, it was only because he was in Detroit that he didn't get that recognition. Right. Like he had some ridiculous games, man. Ridiculous stats. And yeah, if he would have been able to play a little bit longer, um, you know that that is it's unreal the numbers he would have put up. But I also, and and I say this all the time. I tell I tell Marshawn this all the time. The game, the NFL usually retires you. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you can walk away from the game whenever you please. Now don't get me wrong. Calvin's made a ton of money, and you, you know the, the money wasn't the motivator per se. It was really a passion thing. Like if you can, like there's so I have so much respect for anybody that can leave the game on their own terms. Literally, yeah. like right in the prime of your career, you're like, you know what? My body hurts. I'm over this. We're not we're, like they're not putting anybody around me. Whatever, the, whatever the reason is, you walk away. And the reason I brought Marshawn up is because he did that. Yeah. And I told I, I told him I was like, bro, you're the you're probably one of the few people that can retire, sit out a year, and and have a bunch of teams that still want you back <laughs> at that at that age. Like, because if you retire, it's hard to get back into the NFL. To miss a year yeah. in the NFL, it's hard to get back in the swing of things. So I bring those two guys up because I think both of them should be first round, uh, first ballot Hall of Famers. Both are great teammates. Both are great individuals. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, and so I'll get you out of here on this, my friend. Uh, I can't, you know, finish a show without asking you about the playoffs, which are about to get started. So I know you follow the league. I know you watch. Who do you like in the NFC and the AFC? Ooh, AFC is is you know the, the great thing about the playoffs for the NFL, right? All you you just have to be the better team that day, yep. right? And the AFC, it's hard to find anybody to compete with KC. I agree. But Buffalo looks looks like you know if there if there's gonna be a team that's gonna give them a challenge, Buffalo might be the one, right? Um, so I, I would go with KC, but Buffalo's gonna give them a run for their money. Okay. Um, and the NFC, it's a little bit harder conversation. Um, I mean, I, obviously, Green Bay is who they are. They they're great, but collectively as a team, because in the playoffs, everybody needs everything needs to be clicking at all all cylinders. So that's the only thing that concerns me with Green Bay. Um, but I was, although I said all that, I think either I think Seattle has the potential to do some great things too um, if they're clicking, but. To answer your question, I know I'm rambling a little bit because I'm trying to think through it. Uh, there's a lot of great teams in the NFC. You talk about uh, uh, Green Bay. You talk about Seattle. You talk about New Orleans and Tampa. Uh, out of all those teams, whew, I got. I guess I'm going to be a homer on this one. I'll go with Seattle because I don't okay. want anybody out here to burn my house down. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. No, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's definitely the Chiefs, and then if it's anybody else, I think it's probably Buffalo. And on the NFC side, it seems like it's a little bit more wide open. And, and the one intriguing one to me is if, uh, if, if Tampa wins this weekend against Washington, um, then it would be Tom Brady, who played in cold weather his whole career up until this year, going to Lambeau Field uh, to play Aaron yeah. Rodgers and in a game where Tampa took care of them pretty handily early in the year because of that pass rush. And, mm-hmm. you know, Todd Bowles at defensive coordinator, I think, is a tremendous, tremendous coordinator. Um, and so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. But uh, I agree. I think it's going to be ultimately the Chiefs. I think they're going to take the whole thing. I think Mahomes is that good. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But Cliff, I can't thank you enough for taking the time uh, to chat with me. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed talking a little ball and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. 
Most definitely, man. I appreciate you having me. Uh, man, great stuff. Uh, and talk soon. So there you have it, a conversation with former Lions and Seahawks defensive end Cliff Averill. I hope you guys really enjoyed that show. It was a tremendous amount of fun for me, uh, especially because, you know, much like I've mentioned with some of the other episodes, Cliff was a guy who I didn't know prior to speaking to him on the phone and recording this podcast. And so his agent had recommended that he might be a a good guest because he's a charismatic guy, a guy that knows how to tell good stories and a guy that, you know, is very talkative. And, And sure enough, Cliff was fantastic. I had a blast talking to him and I'm really looking forward to talking to him again at some point because you know he just he's a great guy and it was really really fun for me you know his anecdotes about what that Lions room was like and and Calvin Johnson and some of those guys on that team were fascinating to me and then you kind of juxtapose it with all the winning that he did in Seattle you know winning a Super Bowl getting back to a second Super Bowl you know going to a Pro Bowl for the first time it's just a a really really cool kind of um, you know spectrum that his career had going from you know first of all only playing for two teams and having those two teams be such polar opposites really creates some interesting dynamics and some opportunities for him to reflect and really understand the differences between the locker rooms, the culture, what it takes to win, what what goes into losing, all those types of things. And so I'm very grateful for Cliff carving out the time to speak with me and for being so open and honest about some of those stories. It was great to hear, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Please feel free to check out any of the other episodes that are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, Pandora, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. As usual, if you're listening on an Apple device, I encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and hopefully I'll hear from some of you guys via the comments as well. It's awesome to hear some of those words every time I check the reviews. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.